you, worship team. Let's uh, open the Word of God, please, to Matthew chapter 2. And allow me to read that text, first, two, first 12 verses, I should say. Matthew chapter 2, verses 1 through 12. And I want to read from the New American Standard Bible. Now, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, in the days of Herod the king, Magi from the east arrived in Jerusalem saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star in the east, and we have come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him. Gathering together all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he, Herod, inquired of them, where the Messiah, the Savior, the Old Testament had promised, was to be born. And they said to him, in Bethlehem of Judea, just six miles from here, down here all the way. For this is what has been written by the prophet Micah in 700 B.C. And you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the leaders of Judah. For out of you shall come forth a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. That was a prophecy about the birthplace of the Messiah. So now we know the prophecy was Bethlehem, six miles away. Now Herod can answer the wise men. Then Herod secretly called the Magi, who weren't astrologers. Pagan astrologers have no motivation to come 800 miles to find the Jewish Messiah. These were astronomers who were believers in the promised Jewish Messiah, who's also the Savior of the world. And they were... Uh, on location to find and worship him. But Herod secretly called them and determined from them when they first saw the sign that the Christ child had been born. And he, Herod, sent them to Bethlehem and said, Go and search carefully for the child. And when you have found him, report back to me so that I too may come and worship him. Hey, Blanche, are there, are there lies in the Bible? Accurately, inerrantly recorded lies like that one. That's right. That's right. Herod had no desire to worship him, as you know, but that's what he told them. And after hearing the king, now they know it's just six miles away. They got out their maps and they went their way and the star, the point of light, which they had seen in the east when they were in the east, went on before them until it came and stood over the place where the child was. And when they... The wise men saw the star. They rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. And after coming into the house, we're not in a stable now. This is after Jesus was born. See that, Russell, back in verse 1, after Jesus was born, the shepherds never saw the wise men and vice versa. This is maybe a year later. After coming into the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother, and they fell to the ground and worshipped him. What does the Bible talk about? getting on your knees and worshiping things or people. Is that a good thing or a bad thing? According to Scripture, there's only one God, and you're not Him. There's only one God we are worship, and it's the real God. So for them to worship in this way and for that to be accepted is clearly affirmation of the full deity of Christ, even in His infant stages. Coming into the house, they saw the child with Mary's mother. They fell to the ground and worshipped Him, proscunio. Uh, then opening their treasures, they presented to him gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. And then, 
having been warned by God in a dream not to go back to Herod and specifically identify the location, the Magi left for their own country by another way. This morning, my message is as easy as one, two, three. We're going to talk about three things all of us need to know about Christmas. We're going to talk about one, the one and only real meaning of Christmas. We're going to talk about the two major passages that deal with Christmas. And then we're going to talk about three terms that confirm the very purpose of Christmas. But before we dive into our study this morning, let's uh, pray that we'll be teachable to God's Word. And uh, let's pray for our peace officers, our firefighters, and our uh, our troops um, that protect us uh, all over the globe. And uh, Mike Palovic, uh, would you pray for us in that direction, please? Thank you, Mike. You know, um, as great as Christmas is, and we all look forward to it and enjoy it, it can be a stressful season for some people. Actually, for a lot of people, it can be a painful period. Uh, including some people you would never expect to be stressed out by Christmas. And so with that in mind, uh, to warm up your capacity for abstract thinking, top three signs Santa Claus is stressed out. After Christmas this year, he's leaving the North Pole, moving to Miami, changing his name, and becoming a male swimsuit model. He's just giving it up. Number two, last week, he wrote an angry rant on his Facebook page denouncing the ministries of the Easter Bunny and the Tooth Fairy. He just has lost control, Lori. And finally, uh, just yesterday, he got mad and he fired his brightest reindeer, Rudolph, and his tallest elf, Ron Miller. Yeah, um, let's talk about three things we need to know about Christmas. I think uh, these things will help us better appreciate Christ and Christmas, and certainly they can help us help others better appreciate Christ and Christmas because there's a lot of disinformation out there. Now, a lot of fuzziness. It's not necessarily all maliciously intended, but it's just a lot of fuzziness, I think, about Christmas nowadays. Um, when we think about uh, the one real meaning of Christmas, I mean, celebrities and well-meaning people, newspapers and magazines will will uh, get close to Christmas, Henry, and they'll say, hey, you know, uh, we all, I think even the fundamentalist Christians would say that we've commercialized Christmas too much. And uh, yeah, I definitely believe in that, uh, that that's a problem. Uh, so let's get back to the real meaning of Christmas. And you'll hear people, you know, like Taylor Swift telling you what the real meaning of Christmas is or uh, people like that. And, and they're, they're well-meaning. And they'll say things like, well, we all know that the real meaning of Christmas is peace on earth. Now, we know that the angels on the night of the birth talked about peace on earth, which is going to come through the Prince of Peace. But the Prince of Peace said, until I come back and establish peace, there will be wars and rumors of wars. So what does that mean? What is the Christian, uh, the smart, biblical uh, foreign policy until the second advent of Christ? Uh, we may as well have the best possible military we can because there are going to be wars and rumors and wars. So people say, Christmas is all about peace on earth. Well, it kind of is, but not really the way they probably mean it. Uh, you hope people say, well, um, you know, the real meaning of Christmas is it's more blessed to give than receive. Now, who said that? Jesus said that. Did he say it in Matthew, Mark, Luke, or John? He doesn't say it there. He's quoted as saying that in Acts. Paul's going to quote Jesus in Acts saying, and he said it, but it's not in Matthew, Mark, Luke, or John. 
And certainly that's true. And I, I get that and I believe in that. But that's not the real meaning of Christmas. Uh, this past week, I regret to inform you that a major national politician and his wife uh, commenting on the 50th anniversary of the Charlie Brown Christmas special uh, literally said that the real meaning of Christmas is little trees need love too. And, you know, after I got off off the floor on that one, I thought, well, you know what? We already have a holiday about that. It's Arbor Day, okay? That's what Arbor Day is about. But, in fact, uh, the real meaning of Christmas is the babe in that manger, which was a feeding trough for animals, for barn animals, you know that. The babe in that manger wasn't in a gold-encrusted uh, bassinet, but was in a common feeding trough for animals. The babe in the manger was and is the God-man Savior. That's the real meaning. So, out of that, we also see that instead of just giving us stuff, God gave us what? He gave us Himself in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. Look at uh, the Gospel of John, chapter 1, verse 9. Let's think about some of the implications of that. We're not saved because of Christmas, but without Christmas we couldn't be saved because unless the God-man enters history, lives a perfect, righteous life, goes to the cross to pay your sin debt in full, and more importantly, my sin debt in full, and validates it with a literal bodily resurrection, then uh, we're in a problem. We're, we're, we're stuck, and I'll show you what that means in a minute. But look at John chapter 1, verse 9 and following. Uh, actually, let's start with verse 10. He, that is, the second person of the Trinity, Jesus Christ, was in the world, and he entered the world through the virgin conception and nine months later the virgin birth. He was in the world, and the world had been made through him, and the world didn't know him. He came unto his own, the, the nation Israel, and those who were his own, the vast majority of them, did not receive him, did not accept him. But as many as did receive him, to them he gave the right to become children of God, even to those who believe in his name, who were born not of blood, it wasn't a physical birth, or the will of the flesh, or the will of man. It was a spiritual uh, birth wrought by the Spirit of God. And the Word, which is a title for Jesus in this context, starting back in verse 1, became flesh. That's the virgin conception, virgin birth, Christmas. And dwelt among us, and we, and that's the apostolic we, that's John saying the apostles saw his glory. Uh, Peter, James, and John saw his glory directly, didn't they? Transfiguration. But I think he's thinking beyond that. We saw his life, his death, and his resurrection. Glory as the unique one from the Father, uh, full of grace and truth. Uh, let me show you a diagram on what I would say is the theology of Christmas. Those little statements, short little small statements, have big truth in them. When we read that the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, that's saying that God the Son took on humanity without ceasing to be deity in the virgin conception. Nine months later in the virgin birth, such that he's the unique person in the universe. One person with how many natures? And they don't overlap, so he's a hybrid. And they don't separate, so he's two people. One person, two natures, such that on the cross, hanging between heaven and earth, bridging the gap between God and man, we've got the God-man, the sinless God-man. 
as the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. It's an amazing thing we're talking about here. Realize the intricacy of the plan to make salvation available and to save those who believe. God the Father is the sender. He's the author of the plan of salvation. The Lord Jesus, co-equal with God the Father, took an inferior role. He's the sendee. He submits to the plan of the Father in the incarnation, perfect life, death, resurrection. And God the Holy Spirit's the activating agent of salvation. We talked about common grace, efficacious grace, regeneration, the impartation of eternal life when we believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. So Christmas doesn't save us. But Christmas is essential for us to be savable because the God-man has to arrive on the scene and he arrived in uh, the way we read about uh, in Matthew and Luke, the two key passages, such that we could have a gospel. And gospel is a noun, not an adjective. And it's the message that's believed that uh, sinners can be saved by and through. It's about the person and work of Jesus Christ. In 1 Corinthians 15, Verses 3 and 4, Riley, the Bible tells you what the gospel is. That's a pretty good source to find where the gospel is. Let me remind you what the gospel is, what I preached when I first came to Corinth, what you've believed, what we've believed is going to save us unless we believed in vain, meaning Jesus didn't really rise from the dead, but he did. Christ died for our sins as our substitute. Everything that could keep you out of heaven, uh, Sharon Bearden, Christ died and paid for. The worst thing you've ever done, the first bad thing you've ever done, your inherent a separation from him anyway because you're in Adam, and even stuff you haven't done yet. If this pulpit represents the cross, and so this would be the Old Testament uh, side of the cross, uh, human history before the life, Christmas, life, death, resurrection of Christ, okay, Matt? And this would be the New Testament side of the ledger. You know, I was born at a very young age, very close to my mom at the time, uh, on a frosty morning uh, on March 16, 1953. I was born about 1,900 years after the death of Christ, right? Okay. Today, 62 years later, I stand before you, a man with a big heart. But I'm taking medication, so I think it's going to be okay. But um, no, uh, that's a bad joke when you've got friends with heart problems. But here I am 62 years later, and my question is to you, uh, as I asked Jamie as a young kid, I mean, he's like five years old. I'm trying to go through the gospel with him. He, he brought up something that was tangential to it. So, so Jamie, you know, the Bible says all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. That means we've all broken God's rules and we break our own rules. I mean, even dad has broken the rules. Do you believe that? And he went, yeah. <laughs> no doubt. Okay. My point is, how many of my sins were future in time when Christ died? How many of David Demerson's sins were future when Christ died? How many did he die for? How about the ones I'm going to commit next week? When I go to the Walmart and lust over the latest computer system or whatever I don't have or don't need, right? Right? Yeah, all of them. See, we don't understand how good this is. Uh, God couldn't save you in the first place unless he paid for all the debt. And the eternal life you get when you trust in Christ is eternal. It's not life until you sin again or, or something. Uh, it has nothing to do with us. We've got nothing to give. He's got nothing we need. For by grace, unmerited favor, are you saved through faith, not of yourself. So Christ died for our sins, and he was raised on the third day. That's the gospel. Now watch this. Let's look at another passage. Uh, let's go to uh, Romans 4, 5. 
you know, uh, the term faith, pistuo is the verb and pistus is the, uh, the noun, is a lot more specific than um, the English word to believe. You can ask people, uh, do you believe in America? Do you believe in... Uh, 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 UFOs, you believe in ghosts, you, you can ask people stuff like that, and we may be saying, do you believe in America, you trust in it, believe in the concept that you're willing to pay a price to keep her and, and serve her, or you can say, do you believe uh, in the Loch Ness Monster, that might be better, do you believe in the Loch Ness Monster, that just means do you mentally assent that there's a Loch Ness, Loch Ness Monster in some uh, lake in Scotland, right? So that can mean mental assent, Robbie, or it can mean like full consent of the will. But the term for believing in, in New Testament Greek is active receptive trust. It's not just mental assent to some facts. It involves full consent of the will. Uh, look at Romans 4, 5. But it's not a meritorious work, and it's not us doing stuff or quitting stuff or promising to do stuff. It's not about what we can do for God. Salvation is not let's, it's not let's make a deal. It's not I paid this for you. And you have to do anything for it except give me everything you've got. Jesus doesn't need everything you've got. Now, as a fruit of your salvation, you ought to give him your life back. It's logical for us to live for the one who died for us. But we're not saved by giving Jesus anything. We're saved by what he gave us through active receptive trust. And look at this verse, Romans 4, 5. I didn't write this. But to the one who does not work, who doesn't do anything meritorious, zero, but believes, pistuo, active receptive trust in the, in the sufficiency of Jesus to save us because of what he did and who he is. But believes in him who justifies the ungodly. According to Romans 5, who gets saved through faith? Ungodly people. Not people who necessarily walk an aisle of sign a card or promise to stop and start and all this stuff that confuses people. That person's faith is credited as righteousness. All the righteousness you need to have a perfect standing for God is given you as a gift when you trust Christ. Now, he doesn't just give you a get-out-of-hell-free card. When you do that, you have a capacity now to serve him, and we're expected to. But uh, what does he say in 1 Peter 1? You know, Long for the pure milk of the word that you may grow in respect to your... The idea that we've got a unregenerate person has to give everything they've got to Jesus to be saved. I mean, really? Now, what does Galatians 3 say about that one? I mean, a lot of us preachers want to see you all do more for the Lord and want to see us do more for the Lord. So we sometimes want to front end the gospel with all this stuff that is expected fruitage, but it's not anything to do with the root of it. Galatians 3, 21, middle of the verse. If a law, if a rule, if a standard, if some kind of commitment, something you could give or do, had been given that was able to impart life, then God would have just had salvation by work system. Why send your son on a mission to die if that's not necessary, if we can earn it ourselves? Then righteousness would have been indeed based on that law, that standard, that requirement, that ritual. But Scripture has shut up everyone, irreligious and religious, under sin so the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. Verse 24, the law has become our tutor to show us we need a Savior uh, to lead us to Christ. We might be justified by works, by promising, by commitment, by walking an aisle, by being baptized, by faith. But now that faith has come and we're looking back at the provided Savior, we don't need to be under the Old Testament law anymore. 
for we're all sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus. So Christmas is necessary to get the Savior in the time-space continuum, as it were, or at least in the human condition, so he can live a perfect righteous life, pay the debt of our sins, be resurrected, uh, and the giver of eternal life. And one more, go to John chapter 3. I mean, obviously, you can't hardly beat John 3 when you want to share the gospel. So I would say, as Martin Luther said, John 3.16 is the gospel in a verse. If, Riley, if you get a chance to share the gospel sometime and you draw a blank, just explain John 3.16. Three things God wants everybody to know. God loves the world. That means God loves you, no matter how good or bad you've been. Uh, God gave his son for the world. That means you're savable because perfect life, perfect atoning sacrifice, little resurrection, and God wants and will save everyone who believes in him. That's what John 3.16 is saying. For God so loved the world, full of sinful people like all of us and everybody out there today. He gave his only son. He's the sender. The son's the sendee. He died on the cross, rose again. That whoever, and the Greek text is actually an articular present active participle, that all of the ones who believe, that's what it says, that all, 100% of the ones who believe in him shall not perish but have everlasting life. So if you've not trusted him, today can be the day of salvation. It doesn't matter what your religious background, no matter how good you've been, you're not good enough to earn salvation. No matter how bad you've been, you're not unsavable. But saving faith is, uh, well, I like the example of Matthew 10. Look at Matthew 10. Uh, There's a couple of places where you see saving faith illustrated. And I may have meant Mark 10, but let's go to Mark 1. Just going to mark one. I'm thinking about the centurion who said, you know, just say the word and, and he'll be healed. Uh, I got a problem. You can fix it. I want you to, and I can't, and that kind of thing. But look at Mark 1 with the healing of the leper toward the end of the chapter there. Look at uh, Mark 1.40. And I realize this is a physical healing, not somebody coming to faith. But I think it's a nice illustration of how Jesus responds to faith and the essence of Pistuo kind of faith. Uh, a leper came to Jesus, beseeching him and falling on his knees before him and saying, if you are willing, you can make me clean. <laughs> you know, I'm messed up. I can't fix it. You can. And I want you to. That's what he's saying. Right. And move with the compassion. Jesus stretched out his hand, touched him, said, I'm willing. That's not the problem. <laughs> Be cleansed. And immediately he was gone. Just remembered what I wanted. Go to Mark 8, verse 10. I got my numbers wrong. My son's a CPA. He's good with numbers. The only numbers I'm good with is 316. That's all I got for you, you know. I'm sorry. Um, yeah, I love this one. Uh, Matthew 8. And again, this is, I, I realize this is not somebody coming to faith. I think this guy was a believer in Jesus as Messiah. This is why he asked him for help. But I think it's a good illustration of, of what faith is. It's not just mental assent. It's, but it's trust, active receptive trust. Uh, Centurion, a Gentile, is uh, part of the troops that are, you know, uh, uh, inhabiting the region to keep them on the Roman thumb, so most of the locals aren't crazy about him to start with. But uh, uh, the centurion sends a message to Jesus saying, hey, I've got a servant, he's paralyzed at home, he's in great pain. Uh, Jesus said, I'll come and heal, heal him. But the centurion said, and the centurion was there in person, uh, watch this, verse 8 of Matthew 8. Lord, I'm not worthy of you to come under my roof. That's, that's humility. 
But say the word. Just say the word, Lord, and my servant will be healed. I got a problem. I can't fix it. You can. I want you to. For I'm a man under authority. I know how this works. With soldiers under me. And I say to the one, go, and he goes. I say to another one, come, and he comes. Just do this. He does it. So you just say the word. I know he can be healed. Verse 10. When Jesus heard this, he marveled and said to those who were following him, Truly I say to you, I have not found such what? That's faith. Faith is saying, I'm a sinner. I can't fix it. I'm guilty. Increasingly, that's becoming hate speech in the United States of America. So you're a hater and a bigot if you tell people that, A. And a lot of people say, not true. (laughs) It just ain't true. They don't think in those categories anymore. But you start with the Holy Spirit convicts you of your guilt and your need and your inability. So I'm sinful. I'm a sinner. I can't fix it. You can because you died for my sins and rose again. And I want you to. As many as received him. Full consent of the will. Okay. Let's go back to the three things you want to know about Christmas. Number one, what's the real meaning of Christmas? Little trees need love too? Uh Uh-uh. The babe in the manger was what? The God-man Savior. That's the real meaning of Christmas, okay? Let's think about the two major biblical passages about Christmas. They are, it's easy. They're Matthew 2 and Luke 2. But watch this, Carol. you got to do it in this order. It's Luke 2. This talks about Christmas night. Matthew 2 talks about a year later. Some people think, well, if you've got uh, something in the life of Jesus that's in Matthew 2, and something in the life of Jesus that's in Luke 2, since Matthew comes first in the Bible, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, obviously Matthew must have happened before Luke. Not necessarily. Okay, not not true at all. So you've got to put those in correct order. They're really two parts of a larger sequence of the events. Luke 2 describes the night of the birth in a stable with shepherds in Bethlehem. The Matthew 2 passage that we read at the beginning of the message is as much as a year later. It's in a house. Uh, we've got Babylonian or Iraqi today, we'd say, big shots who've come to worship the, the baby. The term for child it doesn't mean a newborn. It means an older baby. It's not in a shepherd, not shepherds in a, a manger and a stable. It's a house. Now, how did they get a house, okay? How, would, how do you think Joseph would arrange to get a house a year later? What did he do for a living? It's carpenter. If nothing else, he built one, right? Um, and he probably just uh, earned enough money to probably rent one. But let's look at Luke 2. We read Matthew 2 earlier. Look at Luke 2. And let's talk about what's going on here. And, of course, this is the passage that, uh, the appropriate passage that people read on Christmas, and they should because it's talking about the actual birth. In those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that a census be taken of all of the Roman Empire. This was the first census taken while, prote there means before, and that actually lines up with the secular history. So I'm going to translate it before. Look at Harold Honer's uh, 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 book about uh, chronological aspects of the life of Christ. He talks about that. This was the first census taken before Quirinius was governor of Syria. And everyone was on his way to register for this tax census for the Romans, each to his own city of origin based on his lineage. And Joseph also went up from Galilee in the northern part of Israel down to the city, uh, from the city of Nazareth where he lived and worked, down to the southern region, Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem. We're going to show you some maps and pictures in a minute. Because his background, his lineage, went back to the house of David. That's important for a lot of reasons. 
in order to register for this tax census along with Mary, who had been engaged to him and who was pregnant. And she got pregnant during the engagement via a virgin conception. You can't reproduce that in the laboratory, Richard Dawkins, sorry. Uh, no apologies, that's the whole point. Uh, while they were there in Bethlehem, not where they lived in Nazareth, the days were completed for her to give birth. And she gave birth to her firstborn son, and she wrapped him in cloths, kind of looked like a little dead man. That's what you did with burial uh, burial uh, procedure in first century Israel. You wrapped him up in cloths, laid him in a manger. That's a feeding trough for animals because there was no room for them in the Hampton Inn. Hampton Inn, right? Hampton Inn. In the same region, there were some shepherds staying out in their fields, keeping watch over the flock by night. And just before this happens, one of those shepherds goes, I hate this job. Nothing exciting ever happens. You know? And then boom. You know, just as soon as he said that, an angel of the Lord suddenly stood before them. Uh, the glory of the Lord shone around them and they were terrified. Uh, King James says they were sore afraid, uh, which I love the thundering diction there, but it means terribly whacked out scared. That's what it means. But the angel said to them, calm down guys, we're on the same team here. Don't be afraid. Uh, I bring you good news, the gospel of great joy, which will be not just for the Jewish people, but all the people, anybody who believes. For today in the city of David, and nothing big had happened in that city for a thousand years. David had been born a thousand years ago, Meg, and since then nothing's happened. And nothing ever happens in little towns. Nothing happens in little towns. Mm-mm. Yeah, a lot of good stuff happens in little towns, at least as God measures it. Um, for today in the city of David, there's been born for you a Savior who's Christ the Lord, and this will be a sign for you to be the only baby wrapped up like a dead man in a cattle trough in the whole town of little town of Bethlehem. There's not that many babies born tonight, and he'll be the only one in a stable wrapped up like a dead man. Uh, that'll be a sign to you. You'll find him wrapped up in an open manger, open stable kind of arrangement, probably on the side of the hotel, uh, lying in a manger. And suddenly there appeared with that angel a choir of heavenly singers. Didn't sing as good as James and the guys did today, but almost... Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace among men. Yeah, there's peace among men. The Prince of Peace is born. But he said, there's going to be wars and rumors till I come back. So that's what that is. When the angels had gone away uh, back into heaven, the shepherds said, as opposed to Herod, sending Iraqis to go find the baby a year later, let's go straight to Bethlehem and see what's going on. They're probably overlooking Bethlehem, not very far away. And let's, find us, let's see this with our own eyes. So they, they came in a hurry, verse 16. And they found their way to Mary and Joseph and the baby as he lay in the manger, just like the angel said. And when they'd seen this, they made known the statement which had been told them about the child. And all who heard it, who walked all the standers by or walkers by, were wondering, wow, that's crazy. Can you believe that? But Mary, who's a deep theological thinker, treasured all these things, pondering them in her heart. She's connecting all these dots from all these Old Testament passages she's read about the Messiah. And the shepherds went back to work glorifying and praising God for all that they had heard and seen, just as had been told them. Uh, go back to verse 3. I want you to notice. And that's not what I want. Go back to um, verse 11. He's going to be born in the city of David, and he's the Savior, and he's Christ, and he's the Lord. We're going to talk about those terms in a minute. Uh, the Matthew passage, let's look at a function of that. Go back to Matthew 2 which happens about a year later. And as I pointed out, when I read it just in passing, hey, Ken, prepositions are your best friend when you're reading your Bible, man. Because they, they talk about the relationships of 
other concepts to one another. And we kind of use uh, kind of the Evelyn Wood speed reading technique on our Bible sometimes, and we just blow through all this stuff. But notice, you know, the first time you tell people that Matthew 2 happened a year later, it blows their minds. And then you say, well, where do you get that? You know, because all the Christmas cards I've got, I mean, every Christmas card I've ever gotten has the shepherds and the wise men and the camels, and there's just three wise men, and we all know that. We don't know how many wise men there were. We're just told there are magi, magoi, which is plural, which means two or more. There might have been two. There might have been 32. The fact they gave three types of gifts have led people to assume there were three guys with three types of gifts, but the text doesn't say that. But watch this, Joe Franks. Uh, Matthew 2, verse 1. Now, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem. Now, that, that uh, preposition in the Greek text, you know what that means? It means after. That's what that preposition means, yeah. So that's really important to know that. You know, that's why Greek and Hebrew is very important. After, this is months later, maybe a year later, Jesus was born in Bethlehem. And the shepherds had been back to work for a year. It's a good thing, right? Uh, uh, in Judea, uh, during the days of Herod the king, when there was a Roman tax census, as Luke says, uh, magi, these are not astrologers and pagans. These are astronomers, scientists who also have the scripture. How would a bunch of Iraqis get the scripture? The Old Testament scripture. Daniel and Ezekiel ministered in Iraq, you know, Babylonian captivity. So they've got the scripture. These guys are looking for the Messiah who's the Savior of the world. Uh, supernatural point of light. We won't go into that. There's different theories on that, but I've given you my opinion before on that one. Uh, when we were in the East, we saw something that shouldn't have been there, and we probably applied that to a couple Old Testament passages, connected the dots. They may have had some angelic input. But when they hit town with this big caravan, would have attracted attention. Herod was freaking out because he was very paranoid about his power and all the power base in Jerusalem too. So gathering together the religious professionals, because he doesn't know that much about the Old Testament, he said, I know there's a passage in the Old Testament or in the Tanakh, in the scripture, that says where the Messiah is going to be born, but I can't remember which one it is or where it is. I mean, could you remind me? And these guys, notice this. What happens when the shepherds hear the baby's been born? What do they do? What do they say to each other? Angel goes away, and what do they do? They immediately say, let's go check it out, right? Watch what happens when the wise men, the people who run institutional Judaism, are called in, and Herod says, hey, we've got some out-of-towners saying the Messiah's been born. I know there's a passage in the Old Testament that says what city he's in. Can you tell me what the city is? You know? And they go, yeah, that's obvious. You know, Micah 5, 2, Bethlehem. So what happened? Did those religious guys say, hey, let's go check it out? They're too lazy. They're too corrupt. They know the facts. They know mental assent about theological facts cannot save you. Full consent of the will to trust Jesus Christ is what saves you. Uh, and that won't push your, they won't push your spiritual life either. Just raw theology. You gotta kind of process it through your head and your heart. It's just interesting that they're citing chapter and verse in Hebrew, the passage, uh, Blaine, that had predicted this, but they've got no desire to go. And it's six miles downhill all the way. So it's interesting that people from Iraq were more spiritually sensitive than these uh, these guys were. Uh, I would just say, watch, here's the principle. Carol, don't get your theology from Christmas cards, okay? Because they may not be correct. And all those all those pictures, Olga, all those pictures of Je- baby Jesus and Mary and Joseph and the wise men and the shepherd, they're not photographs. They're artist representations, okay? And if they put them all together at one time, it's, it's not. It didn't happen. It didn't happen that way, okay? Now, what does the word Bethlehem mean? 
Yeah. Bet is house. Lehem is bread. House of bread. And that's pretty cool because Jesus is the bread of life, right? But this is a real place. It's still there. Uh, we don't realize that after Herod died, the Romans allowed his sons to kind of subdivide the empire and send them their taxes. But Herod had a pretty big, yeah, lost my pointer, uh, had a pretty big amount of real estate that he controlled. And as you know, right, uh, Mary and Joseph lived up here in Galilee in the city of Nazareth, but they've come down here, avoid the Samaritans because nobody goes to Samaria to go to Bethlehem. And that's where they are. Look, Blanche, where's Jerusalem vis-a-vis Bethlehem? Very close, right? Like six miles. Not, not hard to get there at all, but, uh, boom. So that's where all that's taking place. Now these are some recent, these are photographs. These are not artist representations. These are real sheep. And no sheeps were harmed during the taking of these photographs. Although sometime after that, they probably were harmed and eaten. Look, if God didn't want, you know, some of my best friends are vegetarians like Nancy and Candace, but you know, if God didn't want us to eat Animals, he wouldn't have made them out of meat. I'm just telling you. That's my opinion. Uh, now, I want you to notice this. I know that all the folks that went to uh, Bethlehem with us in 2006 remember, uh, you know, we kind of got on a, a special bus, went on a magical mystery tour, and went through the wall, and we got into the West Bank, and then you stop at a bus station at the bottom of a pretty steep hill. You remember trudging up that hill? I mean, this is a very, you know, uh, hilly mountainous region, rocky kind of region. It's hard to find grass to, to feed all the sheep. They're struggling for that all the time. But uh, what I wanted to show you here was a church called the Church of the Nativity. And notice it's shaped like a cross, okay? There's the upright and there's the cross beam. And then this area right here in front of it, you know, is the, uh, the area that CNN always shows you at midnight. Uh, it's right in front of the Church of the Nativity there where they kind of gather. Uh, but to get there, you, you you get on a bus with a nice Jewish uh, driver and a nice Jewish uh, <laughs> guide, and they drive you to where the beginning of the West Bank is, and they have a wall there. Now, I'm not a big Trump supporter myself, although the Bible says before the end times, the Trump shall sound. <laughs> but I meant a trumpet. Not a politician. But, you know, he's a big about building a wall. Uh, last time I checked, about every sovereign nation in the world kind of uh, controls its borders. And uh, this was very controversial. A few years before we got here in 06, Israel had built a wall to keep people from bombs coming over and killing innocent women and children. And it's worked marvelously well, by the way, the wall. And that's, that's the Israeli side of the wall. Okay. And uh, then you go, so you go, you show somebody some papers, and they give you a sheet of paper, and then you come over here and go through a, a door in the wall, and you can kind of tell how steep it is. There's Julie Miller, there's Pam Cox, there's Jamie, there's Debbie, there's Jonathan, there's Kristen, yes, and there's our uh, Palestinian bus with this Palestinian guide waiting for us. Okay, now look at this side of the wall, you know, down with the Jews, you know, kill the Jews, you know, look at the Israeli side of the wall, very clean, you know, so, for what that's worth, uh, we're still in the Palestinian, now we're going up, we go down, go up, uh, now, we're in the, kind of the, uh, courtyard of the Church of the Nativity, and again, uh, people complain about I show people's backs, but I'm like the best photographer of people's backs probably in the world, you know, I'm, I have so much experience doing it, and there's 
K-Rob, and there's Tom, and uh, there's our friend from West Virginia, and there's Debbie, and there's Kristen, and there's Jonathan, and there's Jamie. Candace, where were you there? I was, you're in there somewhere. But now watch this. If all those people did an about-face, that's the church of the nativity, okay? And ask Ron about the teeny little door you got to squeeze through to get in. But if you do an about-face, you do 180, Ken, you see this immediately across the street from the church of the nativity. What is that? That's a mosque. You know what? I think we ought to respect other people's places of worship and holy places, and I get that, and I try to do that. All I can tell you is, when you go to Golgotha, not Bethlehem, but Golgotha, where the crucifixion took place, the the Palestinians have built a bus station in front of it, a graveyard on top of it, and a mosque next to it. Can you imagine if you had some sacred site for that religion, and the Jews put a... uh synagogue on top of it, a Jewish graveyard in front of it, and a bus station. It just wouldn't happen. And they wouldn't do it. But yeah, they just want you to know we're watching you. <laughs> we, uh, we're here. You know, We'll let you have your little church, but uh, we control the areas. That's, that's just letting you know. Uh, that's us walking out. I always like this picture because, Pam, I, for years I thought you were checking your watch, but I think you're just readjusting your uh, pack. I don't, I'm not sure. And that was... We're not. Well, when we go to heaven, we'll look at the tape and try to figure that out. But when you get inside the Church of the Nativity, it's a, um, a Greek Orthodox, East, Eastern Orthodox church. They got the icons. They got all the gold and stuff, and and all this extra ritual, and in some cases, some superstition that they tend to do. Uh, in some cases, not all cases. There's some nice Greek Orthodox people out there. Um, there's our Palestinian guide. I did like his hairdo. That's that's, that's good. Uh, that's me. There's Jamie. This time, just telling. Hey, Max, there you are, praying. She's praying, having squeezed through the front door. And hey, there's Debbie and Kristen. See. And I need the point. So if these people are happy, I showed their pictures. I'd do that. But I just trying to prove to you we really, we were really there. I'm not making this up. These are real places, Blaine. Uh, there's the the head elf, former head elf. He got fired yesterday. There's Julie in the church of the nativity. You were there, right, Ron? You were there, buddy. And there we are now. Uh, you go downstairs to, to find out where Jesus was born. You go downstairs. Now realize you've got a lot of authentic sites in Israel and you've got some traditional sites. And the traditional sites are not authentic. But after Constantine became a Christian in about 313 A.D., he sent his mom Helena in 325 to find out where the religious sites actually took place so they could build churches there. And so... That'd be like me and Joe going to Valley Forge, Pennsylvania next week and saying, where was the general's, where was George Washington's tent? We'll give you a thousand dollars if you show us where George Washington's tent was 200 years ago. Somebody, one of the locals would be happy to show us, wouldn't they? For a thousand dollars. So, you know, they found all these traditional sites in some cases, like this one, and, uh, I'm not sure who all these people are. This guy with a bald place in his head, that couldn't be me. I'm a lot better looking than that. But you get down there and everybody gets in line to, to look at this little shrine thing. And I'm not making fun of it at all, but I trust, trust me. Uh, Jesus was born in a cave-like stable thing. He wasn't born, uh, uh, in what looks like a shrine, almost like a fireplace with a silver star on it. But if you want to go to the traditional site, that's where you're gonna, you're gonna see that. And, uh, wow, Jonathan, look how young you were back then. Man. That's crazy, man. You're looking good there. And Candace is so cute. And there's uh, 
Kristen and I forgot the other guy, this guy's name, but he's a, he's a good guy. But they're just, you know, you always get your picture made at those sites, but. Now, what's this? Those cows, what's that? Yeah, that's a manger. That's a manger, okay? That's a manger, okay? So when we're saying Jesus was born in a manger, we're saying God does some really weird stuff that blows our categories. You'd think the incarnation of God would have a golden encrusted, you know, bassinet waiting for him, right? In a castle or a palace. No, he's right down there with the common people. Uh, and, you know, God, as Lincoln said, God must love the poor people because he made so many of them, you know, right? So, one real meaning of Christmas, what is it? The babe in the manger was and is the God-man, Savior, right? Uh, two key biblical passages. Luke 2 describes the night of the birth. Matthew 2 describes events sometime later, but still celebrating the birth. And now let's summarize and finish by talking about three key terms that confirm the purpose of Christmas, okay? And I'm thinking of Lord Jesus Christ. Now, the word Lord uh, here, Lord Jesus Christ, uh, that's English, L-O-R-D. But if you write that in Greek, it looks like that, kurios, right? That term Lord, kurios in the Greek text, corresponds to a specific term in the Old Testament for God. There are three basic words for God in the Old Testament. There's Yahweh, which is the term that uh, is applied to Jesus in that context, uh, which is translated in all caps for English readers in the Old Testament. You got Elohim, which is translated God, and you got Adonai, which is Lord, which is the first letter capitalized. Lord Jesus Christ is an affirmation of Jesus' deity. In him all the fullness of deity dwells in bodily form. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God the Father, and the Word was full deity himself, and the Word became flesh. So that's a real strong affirmation of the deity of Christ. And that's important because a man can't bridge the gap between God and man. Only the God-man can do what Laurie McCann or or uh, Pam Cox or Brad McCoy needed as far as a Savior is concerned. Okay. Now, let's talk about Jesus. Uh, behold, uh, Mary was told, you're going to conceive, bring forth a son, and you're going to call him Yeshua. You're going to call him Jesus. And the term Jesus means... Uh, God saves. Yah is Yahweh. Yahweh saves. Uh, his very name describes what he's going to do. Now, when we talk about believing in the name, stop in the name of the law, or believe in the name of Jesus, believe in the name of God, it, it doesn't literally mean believe in the meaning of the name, although it would include that. It means believe in the person and character that's represented by the name. So when we say we call the name of Jesus Christ, we're calling on the one who's our Savior, our best friend, our Lord, our Master, uh, our coming King, that kind of thing. But His very name means God's Savior. It's kind of like God wants to do everything He can to make sure you understand, Robbie, this is the guy you need to trust in. You're not good enough to save yourself. You're not so bad you can't have it yourself. So yeah, the term Lord affirms the deity of Christ, just the, the name of the, the meaning of the word. Jesus means God's Savior. That's what it means. And then the term Christ, as I like to say, you know, isn't his last name. It's a title. Now, what do you think about when you see that? Whoo, you know, I kind of, kind of, I still, I know what it means or it can mean. And I know it's not necessarily what you might think it means. But let me ask you a question. When we're looking at this third title, Lord Jesus Christ, okay, Elliot, uh, 
There's the word Christ in English. Okay. There's the word Christ in Greek. And the reason we're doing Greek is because the New Testament was written in Greek and you've got an English translation because you, you and I don't read Greek conversationally, right? But let me ask you a question. Uh, most of y'all know the answer to this trick question. If you look at the Greek text here, what's the first letter in the word Christ? X. Thank you. That's what it looks like. It sure looks like an X. But here's the thing. Here's the trick. Uh, we're not looking at English here. We're looking at Greek, and the, what looks like an X is actually a different word. It's called key, like the key you use to open your door in uh, with, and it's the CH sound. Now, let me tell you something. Uh, symbols, watch this, Blance. Symbols only have the meaning ascribed to them by their user. Let me ask you a trick question. Is the, when, when lion is used as a symbol, in the Bible, is that a bad symbol or a good symbol? Huh? It's good when it's talking about Jesus as the Lion of the tribe of Judah. But what about when First Peter says, Beware your adversary, the devil prowls around like a roaring lion. Is that a good symbol or a bad symbol? It depends on the context. Symbols are neutral. You can use a lion to talk about Jesus or talk about Satan, right? Watch this. Uh, that term X in English, I don't doubt, especially now with the secular bias against us, there are some people who probably put X anymore. It's controversial to say Merry Christmas. You realize that. You're not supposed to say that because you're imposing your values on other people. But I don't doubt many people who don't know that X can stand for Christ, first letter in Christ. They're just wanting to X out Christ from this, from this term. I get that. If that's the intention, then that's a bad usage for it. But because the reality is uh, the New Testament uses that term for Christ, it starts with what looks like an X, it's a key. That X or key has been used since the first century to stand for Christ. Okay? Here's a Greek alphabet. I'm not showing off, but I, I can actually I write this under pressure. Uh, alpha, beta, gamma, delta, epsilon, zeta, eta, theta, iota, kappa, lambda, mu, nu, ka, si, omicron, pi, rho, sigma, ta, upsilon, phi, ki, phi, si, omega. Now, when you get here, this is the lowercase key. See that? That's, that's alpha, right? That's beta. What letter is that? It's not X. It's key. CH sound. So, there are some people who actually, especially in Europe or Asia, that use X as an abbreviation for Christ and use X ma X mass as a, just a shortened form of Christmas. Because if you get to the end of a billboard and don't have enough room, you, sometimes you want to shorten it. So this was a, I didn't make this uh, graphic up. I just found that some group was saying, keep not X in Christmas. That's not X Christ out of Christmas. If that's what they mean, I don't like that. I'm against that. I understand that. But many people all over the world will use the term X or the, the symbol X to stand for Christ. Keep Key in chemus. It's not Xmas, chemus, because early Christians used Greek abbreviations. Now watch that. What, what is that? That's a symbol for Christianity. It goes back to like the fourth century. It's called the chi or the key row. The key is the X. What's that letter in the middle there? Looks like a P, doesn't it? But it's not a P. Look at this. What looks like a P is actually an R sound. In Greek. And again, that's not important, but just realize that X, that XP, which is actually a key row, has been used for 
1,500 years as a symbol for Christianity. They're not Xing out the row there, or the, the, the P. Um, there's another one that's even better, because look at this. you got the key, the X, which stands for Christ, the key, which stands for Christ. The P, which is a row, stands for the second letter, Christos. So it's just a longer abbreviation for Christ. Now what's this? That's the capital Alpha, capital Omega in Greek. He's the Alpha Omega. That's an Aleph, and that's a Tav. That's the first and the last letter in Hebrew. So that's a really kind of a, a more detailed Kiro or Cairo uh, that's a symbol for Christ. It's not Xing Christ out. It's just using the symbols that certain people have used. Uh, since we're talking about symbols, just for no extra credit, no extra charge, I guess, and we're almost done here. What's that? You realize that was an early symbol for Christianity, right? Why would we use that as an early symbol for Christianity? It's called an ichthus. And the reason it's called an ichthus is because when Robbie is a good hunter and fisherman, when he sees that, he says, I wish they had put more detail on that fish I want to catch. Okay? Right? Daryl, he used to say the same thing. They're fishermen. They love fishing, right? So, you're, I mean, you're just Pavlov's dog. You're salivating. You can't wait to get back to the Blue River and catch some fish, right? So when we see something like that, we might think, well, that's a fish, right? Riley, that's a fish, right? Kind of a, kind of a, a schematic of a fish. But in fact, that's all caps. That's the Greek term for fish, which wasn't fish, but ichthus. Ichthus was the word that meant fish. Uh, iota, chi, theta, upsilon, sigma. Those are all capital letters there. So watch this. The reason the early church, the Bible doesn't say do this. New Testament doesn't say this. The reason the early church, Eric, used a Ichthus, a fish, as a symbol for uh, the, the faith is because it was what's called an acrostic. Because each one of those letters, Iota is the first letter in Jesus, Ki is the first letter in Christ, Theta is the first letter in God, uh, Weos is the first letter in Son, and Sigma, that's a capitalized Sigma, uh, is the first letter in Savior. So, especially after we become illegal, late first century, one Christian could straw, draw that, and the other one could draw this, and they'd point to it and say, hey, where, where's the church meet? Uh, because they would say, that's an ichthus, that's a fish. And ichthus stood for Jesus Christ, God's Son, Savior. It was kind of a secret code, of a, a way of identifying ourselves. Now today you might say, that's not an ichthus, that's a fish. I guess uh, the Father insisted the Savior have... Time on earth to be the Savior, okay? So we could use it the same way, right? But not really. That didn't go well. Should have practiced that better. But there's that. Okay. So we looked at three things you need to know about Christmas. What are they? There's one real meaning. What is it? The babe in the manger was the God-man's Savior. We talked about two major biblical passages. What are they? In correct order. Luke 2, Matthew 2. And we talked about the meaning of Lord Jesus Christ. Just to reiterate, I'd say, look, Let's keep Christ in Christmas. Rather than railing for the culture, the culture may may or may not want to keep Christ in Christmas. They may destroy the sphere of influence to understand what Christmas means and who Jesus Christ is. And that's really kind of our mission. Isn't it? Okay, let's have a word of prayer. Father, we thank you for the greatness of the incarnation, the person and work of the Lord Jesus Christ. I thank you for your willingness to, as the author of the plan, to send him Thank you, Lord Jesus, for your willingness to be sent. And I thank you, Holy Spirit, for empowering him uh, to be and do all that uh, 
was according to plan in a perfect way, including a perfect sacrifice and a literal resurrection. Uh, We embrace you, the triune God. We thank you for your grace in sending a Savior and saving all who believe. And I pray for those of us who have trusted Jesus Christ alone, that you would empower us to be more like him in thought, word, and deed to your glory, especially in this season. I pray for anyone here this morning who's not from the depth of their heart, recognized as the Spirit allows them to see it, their sin, their, their guilt before you, their inability to do anything to make up for it, to cover it, to fix it, and the total sufficiency of the person and work of Jesus Christ to save them as they embrace him from the depth of their heart and active receptive trust. Uh, for those of us who are believers, help us to realize this is the one time of the year we might get some unique strategic opportunities to share John 3.16 with those who need to find out what the real meaning of Christmas is. I pray, Father, as we dismiss and now prepare for the uh, children's musical, that you'd calm their hearts, let them to perform uh, to your glory, and we thank you for each one of those little kids that's going to be up here. We pray for their uh, well-being and their spiritual well-being. We thank you that we are able to love on them here on Sundays and Wednesdays. And we thank you again for uh, your grace and mercy in our lives. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.